Today, Tanner mentioned, is Palm Sunday. And <clears throat> there are some dates we're not certain of, but the two of the most important, Palm Sunday and Easter, we do know. And this is literally, it was Palm Sunday, a Sunday, um, that Jesus descended from the Mount of Olives, which was um, on a, the other side of a pretty deep valley from the city of Jerusalem. Many of us have seen pictures taken from the uh, Mount of Olives of Jerusalem spread out before and with the city wall and city gates even today. And that would have been the scene that greeted Jesus when he headed down the western side of the Mount of Olives to enter the city of Jerusalem. Thousands of people gathered shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. Calling Him the Son of David meant they identified Him as the Messiah. They believed He was the one that for thousands of years had been prophesied and they were looking for. They put their coats and palm branches, making a carpet, really, on the road that He rode on, which was a symbol of royalty and greeted him the word hosanna is save us they recognized that that he was coming as a deliverer will discover that what they thought he would deliver them from was not what he came to deliver them from um, which is typical of of our human understanding but as we look at matthew's uh, record of Palm Sunday that's found in the 21st chapter. All four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a what's called triumphal entry or um, cleansing of the temple in their accounts. The interesting thing, which I'm not going to get into, is that Matthew and Mark and Luke all place it in five days, six days before the crucifixion and one week prior to the resurrection. John places it so clearly that it indicates two entries into the temple. John places his at the first Passover of Jesus' ministry. This is at the third. And so it's apparent that there were two times that he entered into uh, the temple to cleanse it of what was perverting it, which is another whole thought. But at any rate, Matthew's account is the one that we'll read today, beginning in chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 1. We'll read through verse 17. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now keep your, that scripture in front of you, if you would. <clears throat> While we look at several thoughts, by way of introduction, nothing Jesus ever did or said failed to be revealing. Everything he's taught and everything he did, the acts that he did, the miracles he performed, were meant to reveal something, reveal truth, reveal something about himself, about his mission, reveal something about us and our needs. Jesus didn't do anything just because he had nothing else to do. Everything he did had a point to it, a purpose to it, a lesson to it, something that we were to glean from it. This one is among, I think, the most prominent things that he did. Many, of course, were prominent. But this is one of the most um, revelatory things that he did. And it in really encompassed his whole purpose in coming, his whole ministry. On this particular day, then, he revealed himself, he revealed his power, he revealed his person, what his character was, he revealed his purpose, he revealed how perceptive he was um, as far as knowing our condition and our needs better than we know them. And so he disclosed several things, but I just want to look at them under two points. One, <clears throat> he revealed much by, first, his destination. Now, he had traveled several days <clears throat> and had come from Jericho. 
Jericho was uh, down out of the mountainous ridge on which Jerusalem sat, and it was on the east side of Jerusalem. It was down on the Jordan River, and it was there in Jericho where Jesus had traveled through. He'd met Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He had healed blind Bartimaeus, and his whole journey was toward Jerusalem. And he had warned his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and in just a few days, I will be delivered over the, the, to the chief priests and the leaders. They will scourge me, mock me, crucify me, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. They got very little of that. They did hear the part about bad things. They missed most of the part about resurrection. And this is when Peter um, rebuked Jesus. This won't happen to you. This, you're not going to have an end like this. And Jesus rebuked Peter and told him, you're my adversary, you don't get it, you are interested in the things that apply to people and this world and honor of, among men, and you don't understand the things of God. This was then the conclusion of, of this trip. And as they, as they came down the mountainside, and everyone crying out, Save us, you son of David, Messiah. Finally, this day that the prophets have been talking about for 2,000 years prior, from Moses on. Save us, finally. Save us from what? I don't have the time, and I really probably don't have the full knowledge of everything that was going on in Judea and Palestine in those days. It, Jesus was riding down into, of course he'd been to Jerusalem who knows how many times during his three years of ministry, and the people following him, they were going into the capital of Jerusalem. I can't describe to you the welter of stuff that was going on in that little country of Palestine. First of all, we, we can say that they were taxed to death. They had Roman taxes laid on them because they had been overtaken, as had most of the rest of the world, by the Romans, by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire now ruled. The Jews no longer had sovereignty as a nation. In fact, they had restricted a number of things. They, they could print some of their own coins for the temple, but they lost their they're mint. They couldn't print their own money anymore. Second, <clears throat> they took a number of laws out of their hands, among them the death penalty. They were no longer allowed to execute the death penalty for anyone. That's why it ended up that the Jews had to drag the Romans in on it and get the Romans to crucify Jesus because they didn't have the right of capital punishment anymore. So they had the Roman heavy hand heavy taxing hand of the Romans. In addition to the Romans, they had a standing army, an occupying army on every street corner of this capital of Jerusalem. No longer did the nation of Israel even have a standing army. They were occupied. 
by the Romans. And the Romans were not too... They weren't too enamored with the Jews. <clears throat> the Jews were historically a problem country. They were a problem people. They were always rebelling against whoever had taken them over. They were seditious. Um, there was constant riots and people rising up and gathering little groups after them. And there was a group called in this day called the Assassins. There was a group called the Zealots, and they were engaged in undermining the Roman occupying government. So you had a, a Roman appointed governor. In this case, it was Pilate. Beneath them, you had another layer. You had Herod the king. You had some ancient kings over that territory and their dynasties, and they ruled. They were subject to Rome, but they still had their powers. They also taxed. Then you had, as this great crossroads, Palestine was a crossroads of trade, clear from India and China heading to Rome and vice versa. You had, because of that strategic location, there were always threats from other countries and other nations. There was also a bankruptcy, not financial, but religious. The Jews still, of course, had the temple and they had their worship. But by now, one of the key things that they no longer had was the Ark of the Covenant. They had been without the Ark of the Covenant for hundreds and hundreds of years, since Babylonian captivity. In 560, 70, B.C., they completely leveled Jerusalem, including the temple. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared, and it's never been seen since. Except for Indiana Jones trying to find it. Literally. That's, that still haunts people. What happened to that? We don't know. But it was really an empty temple. It's like they came to church, and the reason the Ark of the Covenant and the cloud that would rest over it was symbolizing the presence of God and that's where man met with God it was gone so even though they still had their sacrifices and their feasts and all of that it was empty and the whole Roman set of gods it was bankrupt their religion was followed less and less there was moral upheaval then and rootlessness spiritually. It was a seething mess. I can see why so many people focused on all of that. The heavy taxation, the economic issues, political issues, cultural issues, the invasion of Israel by non-Jews, and so there'd be all kinds of racial and ethnic conflicts. There were great splits between the Jews themselves, those who cooperated with the Rome, Romans and even collected taxes on behalf of the Romans from the Jews were hated and the Jews themselves were divided up into different 
religious groups. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had then some, you had the right wing, the left wing. It was a mess. I can see why people focused on that. And this Jesus, who they saw raise the dead, heal the blind, give hearing to the deaf, walked on water, fed the 5,000 with two loaves of bread. Ah, he's going he's gonna to save us. Hosanna, save us, son of David. Save us from what? Well, this mess we're in. Politics, racial fractures, religious fractures, invaders from outside, occupying army, save us from these miserable Romans, restore our nation. What Jesus disclosed in his destination was not only where he went, but where he didn't go. He never went to the banking center in Jerusalem. He never went to the educational headquarters. He didn't go. He didn't go to the halls of whatever powers that be, whatever decision-making bodies. He didn't go to them. You need to ease up on the taxes. We need to do this. We need to, we need to build better infrastructure. So all, everybody's going to get checks too because we've been sick. He didn't go to any of that. Where did he go? What did he reveal by where he went? He went to the church. He went to the temple. So what did he point out? In going where he went and bypassing the other things, he pointed out that our problems and their problems were not political, educational, fiscal, cultural, racial. Were, were there problems? Yeah. But what was the root problem? And what produced all of those other problems? The state of the heart of the human being. He went to the heart of Israel, the temple. He tells us then, our fundamental problems are first always spiritual. When we are alienated from God, which every human comes into this world with a bent towards enmity against God, resistance to God's laws when we get old enough to understand them, automatically we react, no. Usually the first word a little kid learns is no. And before they can even say that, they exhibit no. And they exhibit me. That's our problem. Today, and the church is filled with it, we've got more programs and more whole parachurch industries to help us with conflict resolution, with, you know, how to raise your kids, with, you know, infinite number 
of marriage support kind of things and massive counseling and all of this to try to help people with their marriages. And, you know, people, we've, people, married people, even in the church and Christians, of course, they're getting divorced, they're having affairs and all that, and we've just got to work on all of it. Listen, it's from here. Nowhere else. But we love. It's in our self-interest to identify the core problem as something else than me. There's that little statement from Jonah. Sea tossed in the tempest, ship about to go down. And he was running from God and the whole business came from God. God said he sent a tempest. And finally, Jonah fessed up to all, everybody else on board the ship. I'm running from the God who made heaven and earth and the sea. And they were total pagans. But they had the nerve to look at him and they said, what in the world is wrong with you to do? How could you do this? Jonah said, the only way we're going to get out of this tempest, you've got to throw me overboard. And then he made this incredible statement. He said, I know that this tempest is because of me. How many people ever get to the place where they say that? I know that this storm in our life, I know that this fracture, I know that this conflict, I know that this mess is because of me. So Jesus went where no one expected him to go, and where most people felt the real problem lies, if we can have, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's stupid. We need to have, I, no one here has ever heard this before. I'm going to be the first one to say it. We need to have a conversation in our country. No. We need a conversion. That's what we need. And if we don't have it, we're finished. Not as just as a country, but as individuals, as souls. We're going to go out and face God. And then taxes and all that kind of stuff isn't going to matter one bit. The books will be opened. And he said, I'll read out of what's written in the books what you have done, thought, acted, whether it be good, whether it be evil. That's what matters. That's why Jesus, in a huge revelation, went to the temple. Because that's the problem. That's the source. My heart. The temple represented the very core heart of Israel. And remember, this, my heart, is called God's temple. God's not hung up on a physical temple. He looks at my heart as his dwelling place. My heart, my soul is made to be God's dwelling place. And what did Jesus say when he got there? He said, 
this is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is where we meet God, and this is where God is pleased to meet with us, and we're pleased to meet with God. And there is likeness, similarity between our hearts and God's hearts. We love the things God loves. We avoid and hate and resist the thing God hates. We're joined. He said, instead you've made this, and the word's cave, instead of den of robbers. It's a cave of robbers. It's a filthy, dark, dank hangout for evil. Unfortunately, that's what our hearts have become. The intended purpose of our heart that we would house God and fellowship with God. His Spirit would live in our hearts. That has been totally perverted. And now what dwells in the heart, in our natural state, without God? All manner of uncleanness, Jesus said. Full of dead men's bones, He said, and all kinds of garbage and filth. And it pours out of here. how far we are from what God meant us to be. Now, he identified that. He disclosed that spiritual issues are fundamental problems spiritual. Why is, listen, the cure for general jerkdom. What is it? Well, I need to get a different job. I need to be challenged more. I need to feel that I contribute. I need to feel that I'm worth something and I need to, I'm worth it and I need to get some self-esteem. No. No. I need to thoroughly repent to the bottom of my shoes and say to God, Lord, this stinking mess is because of me. I know I've mentioned this before. How many people in my life how many people in my life straightened up and quit being jerks and impossible fools the day I got saved my parents became decent parents very understanding three sisters and brothers shaped up overnight my teachers weren't idiots my boss was an idiot, an idiot, where I worked for enough money to buy gas and pay my insurance on a car. You understand? Suddenly I realized they weren't the problem. God changed something in here. When Jesus went to the temple, he identified the problem. But here's a wonderful thing, too. Here they had on hand, when Jesus strode into that temple that was the first time in the flesh someone had walked in there who could do something about it that's the good news he identified that's the problem but I can fix it nobody else can but I can So, he first, by his destination, revealed what the problem is. 
what the root and where it's located. I remember, then I'll move on, but I remember I would go from angry to depressed and I'd bring home D's, grades, my teachers, always. I, it was a broken record. He could make straight A's, but he, he didn't care. Um, and my parents would always sit me down every grade period. And I got old enough, I'd try to intercept the mail because, you know, the, they, they used to mail your, your grades to you. And so I'd be eagle-eyed watching for the mailman. And this is back in the day when they all came up on the front porch and put it in the mailbox so I could hear them and I, could, I had a chance to intercept them and get my grades. And I a lot of times pulled it off. But of course, you know, like every kid, I thought my parents were just, just above drooling as far as an IQ. And they wouldn't figure out that, just call the school. <laughs> oh. And I would tear it up and throw it away. And then they'd say, Do, have your grades come out? No, I, I, I don't know. And then I'd have the sit-down talk, and they'd take your keys for a week or whatever. But my mother would always sit there and she'd say, in the end, she'd say, Dan, your problem is spiritual. Not intellectual. Wasn't even motivation. It wasn't self-esteem. It was, you are out, completely out of line with God. And that's your problem. She was right. It's still right. Our fundamental problem is a human race. We are out of joint with God. Therefore, we carry that disharmony and disunity and chaos in our hearts into every relationship we have. Work, home, school, doesn't make any difference. We merely reflect horizontally our vertical relationship with God that is disjointed. It's out of gear. We're, we're a mess. So we translate that to everybody else. The best thing any of us can do is get right with God. Then, you know what? I don't think we would put all the counselors out of jobs. It wouldn't put the doctors out of jobs. But they'd have a lot of time off. Two people get right with God that are spouses. A lot of things shape up. If Jesus is in my heart, I know what it means to love someone. I know what it means to quit being so miserable selfish. I know what it means to be humble. I know what it means to be teachable. I know what it means to be correctable. I know what it means to admit I'm wrong. That's our problem. So where he went diagnoses the core of our problem. And then the second thing, he revealed so much by his demonstration. Not only his destination, but his demonstration. What he did when he got there. Well, 
in verses 12 and 13, we find out that he first of all declared what the problem was. He said, this place is meant to be a house of prayer and a place of fellowship with God. In fact, you've totally perverted it and turned it into a cave of thieves. And of course, I think I've explained this before, so I'll be very brief. This was especially, this was just days before the Passover, the highest feast they had. And they had three great ones a year, plus they had a whole bunch of smaller times when you came to the temple. Well, this was, you know what this was for the priests and the scribes, the Levites, the temple people? Um, this, was, this was to them and their grasping, greedy hearts. This was their um, Christmas season to a re uh, retail owner. This is what made their whole year, Passover, because you were required to be there. If you were a Jew, you had to go there. I mean, if you lived in Babylon or if you lived in north of Rome, you had to get there. And so from all over came all these Jews, and they came with a couple things. Empty hands, because you can't carry a sheep all the way from Slovakia, so you've got to buy one when you get to Jerusalem. And it has to be approved as blemish-free by the priests. So, lo and behold, what? How did this happen? The, suddenly the priests and the scribes and the Levites and the religious workers, they all owned flocks of sheep. And if somebody who isn't a priest and a Levite has sheep, oh, I'm sorry, he has a blemish. We can't accept him. You'll have to purchase one from our flock. And talk about price gouging. When you've got people coming from all over the empire to Jerusalem, so you buy sheep, doves, whatever you're going to sacrifice from them. And then you come with not only empty hands, you can't carry an animal to sacrifice, but you do come with something. You have change and you have money in your pocket. But it's not temple currency. Oh, that's got to be exchanged. Oh, you've got Roman coins, or you have Rome, you have coins from Crete, or you've got money from North Africa. I'm sorry. You'll have to exchange that for temple currency. And of course, there's a fee. So you turn over 50 bucks and you get about 13 back. That's what was going on. And here's what I like about Jesus. I like about God. When he saw that, what did Jesus do? John gives us a little. He stood outside. We don't get this in Matthew. But he got himself some leather thongs from someplace, and Jesus knew how to braid them up into a nice little whip. Oh, not Jesus. Jesus is kind of soft, and, you know, he's just pats little kids on the head. No, he stood outside, and he wove himself a bullwhip, and he intended to use it, and he did. And the language is very clear that he, he didn't only reserve its use for sheep and goats and bulls. It says them. 
which is people. There were some people. He said he threw over, turned over the tables of the money changers. Can you imagine coins rolling everywhere? He opened the cages of the doves. He used that whip on the people who were running all that market and on the animals. What did he reveal when he did that? His deep hatred for perversion. And perversion is to turn the intended use into a wrong use. We've, under the influence of Satan, we've turned our hearts and our lives and our mouths and our minds. We're perverted in this sense. In the Webster's meaning of perversion is to alter and send in a direction not intended. God never intended our hearts to be dark and wicked and hateful and hurtful. He never intended that. And so when he saw what they were doing with that temple, it's symbolic of what he feels when he sees what we've done with this temple. He's angry because it's against everything he planned. So, he intends to clean house. And he doesn't negotiate. I want us to see that. He had utter authority. And of course, they came around later, kind of timid, said, well, who gave you the authority to do this stuff? He never did answer them. He didn't have to. It was his place. And when he waded into that, he was intent on cleaning house. And he didn't care whether they liked it or not. That's his attitude when he sees sin in our lives. He goes at it. Get rid of it. He destroys perversion. Second, and I've got to define this word lest we miss out on it. He delights in perfection. Now what do I mean by perfection? A good definition of perfection, one definition, is without flaw or without any kind of fault. That's not the way I'm using it. Many times when God uses the word perfection, that He's not using it without flaw, without error. But it means to fulfill its intended purpose. When all the way from baking a cake to landing a plane, we'll use the word perfect. When it functions like it was intended to function. God made our hearts to love Him and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so, where do we get the demonstration here of His delight in perfection? As soon as He got there and cleaned house, I don't know, there's still feathers floating around and dust in the air, and it was a mayhem deal. In the middle of that, Right at the conclusion of Jesus cleaning house, what happened? The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. Notice the poor, needy, the blind and the lame. I would be scared to death if I witnessed that scene. I'd say, wow, I'm not going to go in and talk to him. I'm not making an appointment to get counseling from him. I don't know what in the world he might do. 
when you want Jesus for the right reason, He's approachable. And so, they weren't afraid of Him. The miserable priests and scribes and Levites and crooks, He unnerved them, but He meant to. And they had it coming. But the blind and the lame, He was welcoming to them. And they had confidence in their heart. If I go to Him, He'll receive me. So in the middle of all this, and as the dust just begins to settle, the blind and the lame came to Him and healed them. That's what He reveals too that He wants to do. And I'm so grateful. Palm Sunday, yeah, it reveals a lot of bad stuff. It reveals the wicked core of what was going on. But it also reveals we have a God who is, as the Old Testament says, He is mighty to save. There is nothing He can't fix. You might think, well, yeah, but you don't understand. Yes, I do understand. I understand that we're hopeless, we're helpless, there's nothing we can do, but God can. Look at, a, look at that demonstration. You have these people, and they're all mad now because he invaded our space. And you have someone that you've watched for years, maybe crutches, someone else carrying them, can't walk, paralyzed, and like that, they're walking. You've seen the beggars that have been sitting around the temple where everybody came for 15 years as you worked in the temple as a priest. Yeah, I know that guy. He sat in that same spot for years, begging. He's blind. Suddenly, he can see. I'd leave the guy that did that to them alone. I don't think I'd be indignant, but they were. Even Jesus, who was able to do that, they were mad, hateful. Which brings us to the third thing in this demonstration. Jesus always divides the entire population. Because notice, some praised Him, ran to Him. We know from this version and other, other, the other Gospels that the this was the last straw. With the scribes and the chief priests, they'd had it. This was it. They were done. They weren't putting up with Jesus anymore. They were so desperate, they all got together and said, we've got to destroy him. We've got to kill him. And they managed to pull it off from Sunday to Good Friday. Took them five days. Got her done. But then he really ruined it all on the following Sunday. And we live in that day. That's the day we live in. What, what a revelation then in the words and the acts of Jesus on this Palm Sunday. Tells us where our real problem lies and demonstrates that He can solve it. He can transform us. He can fix it. Let's bow our heads. Let's let the Holy Spirit today, tomorrow, whenever, let Him apply to our hearts this truth that Jesus demonstrated.
And let, let us have hearts tender enough, teachable enough, and, and pliable enough that we admit whatever it is that we've got an issue with, but not admit it to our demise or to our total discouragement. Ah, it's hopeless. No, it's not. Admit what my problem is. Give it to Jesus and there's nothing that he can't remedy. Father in heaven, this morning I just want to first and foremost pray for each person in this room or watching online that they have experienced that triumphal entry where they've allowed Jesus into their own heart. That is first and foremost what we need to do, Lord, is we need to allow you to do a work within us and save us, not from the horizontal stuff that's going on around us, not from our circumstance, but from sin. And I pray, Lord, that as we allow you to have that triumphal entry into our lives as we confess our sin and ask you to forgive us, then that we would open the way for you to cleanse our temple, that you would do a deeper work within us, Lord, that we could walk out of this place today knowing more about you, knowing more what you've done, but with a changed and deeper work done in our own hearts, because that's all that matters. I'm just, it rests on me, Lord, that Pastor Dan mentioned that last week we had people in this church on a Sunday morning who are now in heaven. We can't mess with this, Lord. This is a very real thing that we're talking about. And that's why when you, when our Lord rode into Jerusalem that day, that triumphal entry, and he stood at the top of Mount Olive and he, and he wept over Jerusalem and made the statement, how I longed to gather you near me as a hen gathers his chick, her chicks to hide you under her wing. If there's anyone in here this morning, Lord, that they feel that that longing that you have for them to draw them near to you, man, Lord, help them not to be rebellious, but by your grace, draw them in that their lives could be changed. That is your heart's desire. That's what we see as we walk into this Easter season. And may we be a congregation, Lord, that does not shout Hosanna on a Sunday morning and live as though we want you crucified. May that rest on us as well this week as we go into Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Father, I pray that these things just rest on us, that you minister to our hearts, that you don't let us just get back into the busyness of our week and then look up and it's Easter Sunday. Help us to meditate on these things that we've learned this morning, Lord, that it may change us for your glory and by your grace. May we be a congregation, a church, that can shout Hosanna in the highest of the Son of David, not in empty praise, but in genuine worship of the one who saves us from our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.